reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. Well, it's a delight to be with you this weekend. Um, it's been an amazing week. I've been fighting a, a horrendous cold, and so we're going to pray that God just gives me some freedom this morning, but he is so gracious. I want to say thank you for your part in our ministry with WorldServe. Uh, Tamara and I have the privilege of working with them, and my main focus is to direct this global college program where we are teaching pastors around the world how to study their, their Bible. And your partnership, especially in Vietnam, has been awesome. We got to launch the program last fall, I think end of October, and I uh, had 96 students, uh, 42 in the city of Hanoi, and another um, 49 or 48, or I can't remember the number, in Ho Chi Minh City. And these are all young pastors who are leading churches, planting churches, but have never, ever had the opportunity to study the scripture outside of their own personal study. And it's so much fun to open the Bible to them and help them to see some things they've never seen or thought before. And, and to explain things like expositional preaching for them is just a, like, what is this? Never heard of it. To explain things like studying the Bible in context, never heard of it. And so we have the joy over the next five years of partnering together with Christ City and helping these hundred or so total pastors come to understand how to read and teach and preach the Word of God that will strengthen their churches and expand their work into the community in which God has called them. So I want to say thank you for your partnership with us. What a blessing to know you stand with us. I must also say that Tamara and I just hugely miss Christ City. We're now living in the area of Salmon Arm, and it's been very difficult for us to to find a Christ city. Uh, and so we, we often have said, oh, I wish we could just commute to Vancouver every Sunday. A little ridiculous, but it would be nice. We do miss you. We do miss what this church stands for. Uh, solid on the word of God, solid in worship, uh, loving the community and, and your example in our own lives and your ministry to us over the years we were here uh, were phenomenal. And so I want to say thank you for that as well. Well, this morning we have the wonderful privilege of looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, a, a, a wonderful passage, uh, one that a uh, bit concerning at times when you read this and try to sort out what is Jesus actually saying. As you know, the context is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus giving instructions to what his kingdom is going to look like. And uh, we, we all know that as we read our Bibles that, you know, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it's, it's a book that uh, we just love. You know, I love... I love new Bibles especially, you know, I love the leather, I love the smell of it, I love the fine paper, and uh, I have this, I mean, I, I have a Bible collection because I have a thing for new Bibles, and uh, uh, I just love it. Uh, we, we're told we're, we're to read it, we're to meditate on it, we're to memorize it, we're to study it. Uh, we, just, we just learn to love this wonderful book. 
And I know that as we read and we study, we all have our favorite passages. We have our favorite places or verses or stories, uh, places we anchor into. You know, we're feeling discouraged. We have those places we go to. And I particularly spend a lot of time in the Psalms when I'm feeling down and discouraged. And I'm right now in the process of beginning to write a book on Psalm 119. I've spent months studying that Psalm, and, and I just have learn so much about the greatness of God from one psalm. It happens to be very long. And so I'm, just, I'm, I'm beginning the process of writing a book, just walking through this wonderful, beautiful psalm that is so gorgeously written. So we have our favorite places, but what do we do with all of the stuff we don't quite understand? You know, what do we do with the Old Testament law? What do we do with uh, the laws and regulations of, they say, the book of Leviticus. I mean, not many of us go to the book of Leviticus where we have our devotional time, do we? And if I asked you when was the last time you read the book, some of you would have to go back a significant amount of time. What do we do with all the gory stories that are in the book of Judges? All the killing and warfare that just seems so unnecessary. What do we do with the preaching of Ezekiel and Habakkuk and the other prophets, and how do we fit them into our thinking in terms of how we view the Bible and how we view life in our own time? And so we asked the question, is the Old Testament actually relevant for us today? I mean, after all, it is called old. Now, for most of us, old means passe, out of touch out of vogue, out of fashion, you know, no longer relevant. I mean, just think of our lives. We don't wear old clothes. We don't drive old cars. You know, we're continually replacing our old technology with the latest in terms of our smartphones. We renovate old houses, keep them up to date. And old people especially are seen a bit out of touch. They don't really understand or get life today. They can't quite figure out what the real world is about. And by the way, um, uh, as we get older, you need to know that old is always someone older than us. So it seems that you know, we personally become the standard of what's not old, and anybody beyond us is old. So um, you're all very young. Um, and this is why we keep hearing people say, you know, the, the 50s is the new 40s, and the, you know, the, the, the 50 or the, the, the 40s. Rather, the, the 60s are the new 50s, and the, uh, the uh, 40s are the, the new 30s. See, because we're not too keen on old things. And then we take this thinking with us into the study of the Old Testament, and because it's old, we're not sure what to do with it. Now, the passage before us today, Jesus refers to the Old Testament, and he calls it the Law and the Prophets. And in this, these three or four verses, he gives us a clue as to what we're actually supposed to do with the Old Testament. And he makes four very significant statements. Just review them with me quickly. Verse 17, he says, The Old Testament has not been set aside or replaced with the New Testament. Verse 18, he says that Jesus came to fulfill or to complete or to obey or accomplish all of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. In verse 19, it says we're not supposed to relax or alter or change or set aside the Old Testament law. And then in verse 20, he says, our entrance into the kingdom of God and into eternal life demands 
perfect obedience to the law. And some of us say, just a minute, I thought we were saved by grace. That sounds a lot like legalism. Do you really mean that for us to enter the kingdom of God and to obtain eternal life, we need to perfectly keep the Old Testament law? And that's exactly what I said. And that's exactly, I believe, what Jesus meant here in these four verses. Now, before you run outside and go find some rocks and, uh, you know, significant-sized ones you can really throw hard in order to stone me, I want you to walk through the passage with me to understand what it is Jesus is saying and how this fits in with how we view the gospel today. It seems rather contrary. So let's go back to verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament was not set aside by Jesus. The law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, and they're called the book of Moses, books of Moses or the Pentateuch. And this is where God lays out the foundation of all he's going to do in presenting his glory, in, in providing redemption, providing the guidelines for holy living. It's the first five books that form the, the basis of his covenant promises with people. And everything that flows in the rest of the Bible is built on those first five books. And so they're very, very significant. The, the prophets he refers to includes both the major and the minor prophets. And these are the writings of the preachers of the time who would continually call people back to their renewed relationship with God and to sort things out and go back to God and back to the law and back to his promises. And so the expression, the law and the prophets, Jesus uses here, really is a, a way of saying the entire Old Testament. Now, there are some people who believe that the Old Testament... Was, was God's plan A. And his desire was to call a nation, a group of people, make them into a nation and to bring salvation to the world through them, through Israel. But the plan failed. And so God had to come up with some kind of a second plan or a plan B. And we understand the plan B is the plan, instead of law-keeping now, it's salvation by grace through faith. And somehow this is, this is God's uh, second plan. The first plan was laid out in the Old Testament, but when that failed, we got a New Testament, a new plan from God. And that makes the Old Testament absolutely irrelevant for us today. But it's really true. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus actually says the opposite. In verse 17, he tells us he did not come to reverse or abolish the law and the prophets or set them aside. He didn't come to introduce a new order, a new plan, a new way of coming to salvation. He did not come to set aside what was written beforehand. So stop and think about the law for the moment. What was the law, those first five books of the Old Testament, for? Was it to provide for us, especially the Mosaic Law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, was it to provide for us the way to salvation? Was it the way to earn God's favor? Was it the way to get ready for heaven? Well, the simple answer is yes, it was. The standard of holiness that's of God is displayed in the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law, God demands that for us to enter his presence, we need to perfectly keep all of those laws. 
In other words, you need to keep Leviticus. You're going, hold on. That's not what we've been taught. We've been taught something quite different. You see, the, the law is the declaration of God's holiness and the holiness that he demands for us to dwell with him for eternity. That's what it means when Jesus says, be holy because I am holy. You see, the standard of God's holiness was, was not just tied to the Ten Commandments, although that's the center. And it wasn't just tied to the big things like murder and, and killing, stealing and adultery. But it even dealt with little things like the types of cloth that could be sewn together in one garment. It dealt with things like cleaning the corners of the house with, with a mold would tend to collect. In other words, God's standard of holiness in the law was absolute perfection, and it was to touch and include every single part of life. There was nothing in any part of life that was to be contrary to God's holiness. Everything had to conform. There was no room, even for mold in your house. That's how clear God is. And God's standard of perfection is so impeccably high, and there's nothing he erases, Jesus says, or does not minimize God's holiness. And so verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to lower God's standard of holiness. I didn't come to abolish this or set it aside. I didn't come to deal or to do away with, with God's demand for perfection. And so these laws still stand. You say, well, why? Because God has not changed. He is holy now, just as he was holy back then. He demands the same level of holiness of us today as he did to those who followed him back then. He has not changed. Now, does that mean that he intends this law to be kept? The answer, according to Jesus, is yes. Every part of it? Yes. Even every one of those little laws? Yes. Even the ones about skin rash and mold? Yes. These still stand. They've not been abolished. They haven't been set aside because God's standard of holiness has not changed. Think about that. You see, God does not fluctuate. He's not fickle. His holiness is not dependent on circumstances or culture or political correctness. His holiness and his demand for holiness in us has not mellowed or changed or been abolished with time. You say, well, just, just a minute. I, I thought Old Testament law-keeping was not for us today. I thought we're, we're under grace, not under law. And before you throw the rocks, we need to look at the second thing that Jesus says in these verses. He says, do not think, verse 17, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but here's the key, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So, what did Jesus mean? Simply means that all of the entire Old Testament was fulfilled by Jesus. That's a fantastic claim. I want you to think about what it includes. 
It means all of the purposes and all of the plans of God made through time were completed in Jesus. In other words, for example, he's the one who gives meaning to creation in those first two chapters in that wonderful book of Genesis. He's the one who points to a restored Garden of Eden relationship between God and people. He's the one who's the key to eternal life. He's the one alone who is to be worshipped. He is the one to whom all glory belongs. And he is the one who will eternally reign in a new heaven and a new earth. And all of the purposes and all the plans of God that are laid out beginning from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of the book of Revelation are completed in Jesus. It's amazing. Second thing is that all the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled by Jesus. God's promise to Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent back in chapter 3 verse 15 is fulfilled by Jesus. He fulfills the promise to Abraham that the nations of the world would be blessed through his descendants. He fulfills the promise to David that someone will sit on his throne for all of eternity. He fulfills the promise to Jeremiah that there would be a new covenant, a new agreement with God where he would make a new people with his laws written on their hearts. Jesus completes and fulfills all of those promises of the Old Testament. Third thing we notice is that all of the stories of the Old Testament point to Jesus. He is the perfect Adam. Jesus is the perfect Abraham. Jesus is the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect prophet. He's the perfect King David. He's the perfect shepherd. And we could go on and on and on. Jesus completes and perfects all of those pictures. And then we also notice that Jesus indicates that all of the laws of the Old Testament were obeyed by Jesus. Every action, every word, every thought, every motive was completely in keeping with the Old Testament law. During his life on earth, Jesus perfectly kept the law, every part of it. He never sinned. Even though he was fully human, just as we are, he was without sin. Satan was unable to tempt him successfully. Satan spent 40 days trying to get Jesus to sin, but he did not. Hebrews 4, 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but, we, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Near the end of his life, Jesus said, I have kept my Father's commandments. And 1 Peter 2, we're told, He committed no sin. Jesus is the completion of the Old Testament story. He is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. And he came to keep the law. He came to obey all of its commandments, rules, and regulations. He came to do what no other person has ever been able to do. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying? Well, he says we're not to relax the law. We're not to lower the standards of the law. We're not to set it aside in favor of another law. We're not to relax or lower God's perfect level of holiness. Do you ever consider how easy it is to relax the law of God and to lower the standard? We, we do it a number of ways. 
one of the ways we lower God's law is when we make excuses for our sin. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to make an excuse? You know, I, I shouldn't have been texting while I was driving, but we have our excuse. Or, you know, I, I should have gone and talked to that person. I know they were hurting, but I didn't know what to say. You know, I, I shouldn't have been speeding, but I was in a hurry and whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, we, we do that so quickly. And, and you know, we, we say things, you know, I, I know I shouldn't have gotten drunk, but I was so discouraged. And, and we can go on and make all kinds of lists of sins that we make excuses for. And it's so easy to make an excuse rather than to admit our sin and turn from it. And when we do that, guess what we're doing? We are lowering God's standard of holiness. We're dropping it down to a level that we're comfortable with. I shouldn't have but. And my but excuses me, which drops God's holiness right down to my life or to my level. Another way we relax the holiness of God is a tendency to compromise where our culture says no. We live in a crazy world and our culture is, is in tumult about so many things related to morality especially. And it's so easy to keep quiet and not say anything. And the reason we do that is because we want to be safe. We want to be comfortable. We want to be accepted. We don't want people to reject who we are because we stand contrary to where the direction of our culture. And so we don't say anything. And we, don't, we just, just silently go along and compromise. And what we're actually doing is we're lowering God's holiness down to a level that we are comfortable with. That's not going to cost us anything. That's not going to cause us any pain. Another way we relax it is our tendency to uh, use other people as this measurement of holiness. You know, we, we always, we know that we're, none of us are perfect. We struggle with things. But it's so easy to look at our own life and go, but I'm not as bad as, you know, I shouldn't have done this, but, but they're worse. And what have we just done? We've just lowered the standard of holiness down to our level. We now get to decide what's righteous and holy. And, and we can do that by pointing to others who are worse than us. But we can also do it the other way around is when we, we find somebody and we use them as the model of holiness. And we'll say things like this. Pastor Brett does it, so it must be okay. And suddenly we make him the measure of holiness. And so we've minimized holiness down to a level of human acceptability. See how easy we do that? There's one more way we do it, and that's with our tendency to avoid issues of discipleship because we give ourselves this huge license called freedom. We're so terrified of legalism that we end up making relaxing rules and dis discipleship around ourselves because we're afraid we might become legalistic. And I've heard people say, I I'm free to do what I want. So don't tell me I can't do things. Don't restrict my Christian freedom. And so we relax God's holiness down to our level of what we think is freedom or we're free to do. Now we do have some freedom, but we tend to, to use it for our advantage, not for the reflection of God's glory. But you notice this verse also says we're to teach the law. Why would... God have us, or Jesus asked us to teach it as well. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is so that we would remind each other of God's holiness 
his perfect holiness. And we would remind each other, secondly, what God demands of us. And here's what Jesus said. He said, for I tell you, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' time, and they prided themselves in their holiness. They worked so hard so that the outside of everything, every, they'd be noticed as being holy and pious and righteous, and, and their external behavior was impeccable. Later on, Jesus said, you know, you're, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones, is what he said. But, so Jesus said, you know, your holiness has to exceed the external stuff that religious leaders are doing. It's, it's got it's to come right down into the depths of your heart. And the Pharisees worked hard at holiness, but their holiness was not enough. You see, God's standards of holiness is impossibly high. We cannot reach it. We cannot maintain it. Why? Because our hearts are desperately wicked. Even our best intentions and all of our ministry investments are tainted with our own unholiness. But here's the kicker, verse 20, it gets even harder. To be saved, we need to perfectly keep the law. Look at what Jesus said. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, here's the phrase, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine going back to the book of Leviticus and making yourself a checklist of all the laws, you know, little checkbox in front of it, and you can check off how you're doing. How do you think you would do? Just think of your, this past week in, in terms of your own life. And how are you doing in keeping the law? You know, have you, every word been absolutely true and correct and honest and appropriate? Every thought? Ooh, that's a terrifying one. Aren't you so glad people can't read your thoughts? Terrifying part is God does. But Jesus said, unless you exceed the righteousness of these religious leaders, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we're not just talking about the big commandments. What about the little ones? You see, the law reminds us of God's holiness. It also points out our weakness and our desperate need for God. You see, the law shows us that we cannot make it on our own. We can try to earn and work and serve our way into heaven. And many of us are trying, but we won't make it. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So God wants us to know that we need another solution. And this is, this is where the good news comes in. Verse 17, to go back to it, you'll notice, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus perfectly kept the law for us. He did it in our place. Now, why did Jesus have to fulfill the law? Well, there were a couple of reasons. One, so that he would be the perfect lamb without stain or blemish, who sacrifice God would accept on our behalf when he gave up his life on the cross. And secondly, he perfectly obeyed the law so that God could apply Christ's perfect law-keeping to our lives in the counsel of God. 
And this is the wonderful truth that theologians have called the great exchange. When we place our faith in Christ as our substitute on the cross, God forgives our sin and he removes our debt. But my friends, that's not enough because that would leave us neutral. We walk out of God's courtroom, our sins are forgiven, we have no more debt, but guess what the first thing we do is we fall back into sin. And so we're back in the same mess. So God takes redemption even further, and he says, what I'm going to do to keep that from happening, I'm going to take all of Christ's law-keeping, all of his righteous living, and I'm going to write it on your account next to your name in the books of heaven. And as a result, I'm going to declare you righteous. I'm going to declare you not guilty. You see, redemption is not just the removal of sin. Redemption includes the attaining of the righteousness of Christ. It's a legal transaction that takes place in God's court where now he can simply say to you, you are not guilty, nor will you ever be. And that's the only way we can perfectly keep the law. So was Jesus correct when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. And we go, ah, I'm never going to make it. He says, I provide the way. I'll provide the righteousness of my son who perfectly keeps it and give it to you as a gift. And that's the heart. That's the heart of redemption. You see, when we trust Christ for salvation, our punishment is exchanged for forgiveness, and the perfect obedience of Christ is exchanged for our disobedience. And this is the greatest, greatest transaction in the universe. So the book of Matthew is not a call. These verses are not a call to work harder at trying to keep the law. They're not a call to try to do more things to be acceptable to God because that will not work. You and I both know that already. Try as hard as we want. We'll never measure up. Instead, the passage is a call to believe and to trust what Christ has done. One more thing to think about. Since Christ has completed the Old Testament story, since Christ has is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, since Christ is the one who completes the requirements for salvation, guess what? You can trust him with your story today. Whatever your story looks like, whatever's happening in your life, whatever's happening in your family, your marriage, your workplace, church family, you can trust him. Because he's already proven himself by completely completing the entire Old Testament. He's absolutely dependable, trustworthy. You can relax and thank him and walk in his grace knowing that he will not let you down. Isn't that wonderful? As a result of Jesus holding the law up and accomplishing it for our, on our behalf, we can trust him today. We can absolutely trust him. And to that I want to say to the Lord, Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.